How's everybody tonight? We're going to be in uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles with you, we invite you to open up to Jeremiah chapter 2 and we'll check it out. If you remember last time, uh, we got together, we talked about the call. So last time Jeremiah received the call, you remember, hopefully we learned to think a little bit about, um, a little bit differently about when the Bible says, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, right? Because the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and then what happened that was different? He touched him, right? Jeremiah said, I don't, I don't think I can talk. So the scripture says, so the word of the Lord touched him, touched his lips. So there's a presence, and we see the same thing with Ezekiel, and we see the same thing with Isaiah, that oftentimes when the word of the Lord came to the prophets, uh, there was a at least some type of physical representation, something that they saw, not just a, a thought bouncing around in their head. So the prophets had a very distinctive call, a moment, at least one moment in time where they stood before uh, one of the two Yahwehs of heaven, the Old Testament rabbis <clears throat> in their day struggled because they had two Yahwehs. They had a Yahweh nobody could see. And they had a Yahweh that people saw, not, I don't know if I'd say frequently, but often, right? There's no shortage. I, I, you could probably list 10 people in the Old Testament that had a meeting with the Lord so where God stood before them, right? You always know because they say something like, oh, no, we just saw the Lord and we're still alive. What happened? So you have this representation throughout Scripture of uh, that, that ultimately I think John in his gospel clarifies for us when he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. That means face to face with God. And the Word was God. The two powers of Yahweh, the rabbis used to talk about, or uh, the two powers in heaven. So as we look, we see this Word of God coming to Jeremiah and distinctly giving him a call. And then today in chapter 2, we're going to see the extent of the iniquity. Now, Jeremiah is going to deliver probably, I would say probably his first prophecy. When we look at the prophets, they don't always follow chrono chronological order. So this is a prophecy given. This is a, the, uh, this is a prophecy that happens in this year of this king, or this is a prophecy of that year in this king. So sometimes we've got to do a little background to locate the prophecy in time. But there's some things we can understand from the structure. So the structure of this particular prophecy, it's written like the, a, a legal document. So there were legal documents in their day. Uh, in fact, we know for sure that Judah received three of them. When, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar first conquered Israel, he set up a vassal king. And the vassal king rebelled. And Nebuchadnezzar sent a letter. And in the letter, he would lay out the charges. Here's the charges. Hey, our this was our deal. This was the pact that we made. This is the area wherein you are guilty. And then there was the opportunity that we can either make this right or I'm going to come in judgment. And so Nebuchadnezzar came back, deposed that king, set up another vassal king. That king rebelled. 
Nebuchadnezzar sent another letter. These letters, this, this chapter, chapter 2 of Jeremiah is set up exactly like one of those letters. Just like a legal document declaring to the people, hey, we had a deal. We had a covenant. Like from your king to his government, his, the vassals beneath him that were, that were at least had agreed to abide by a covenant, right? We have this concept throughout scripture while well, Jeremiah chapter two is laying it out. So Jeremiah is delivering to the, to Judah, Israel's gone. So he's delivering to Judah, hey, here's the problem. Here's what's going on. And, uh, to, to give them an opportunity to understand uh, the charges for which God is is holding them accountable. So he begins with this idea, the initial charge that they have forgotten the Lord. It says in Jeremiah 2, verse 1, So the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. So God is thinking back. I remember the relationship that we used to have. I remember when you loved me. And it's important because we see a similar thing going on when we read Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, one of the first letters to the seven churches that Jesus dictates is to the church at Ephesus. You remember? And one of the charges that Jesus brings against that church is that they have abandoned their first love. When we look here at the beginning of Jeremiah, as the Lord's laying out the issue, he's saying, look, I remember when you followed me as a bride. Now, this is a common description throughout all the prophets. A description of, of Israel or Judah as a bride. And then usually the, the challenge or the charge is she's unfaithful. So that ought to be something we can all relate to, right? None of us say that what we want in a mate, what we want in our husband or wife is someone who's unfaithful. That's no one's goal. So understanding when God says, when God makes the claim, hey, I remember when you used to love me, but you don't love me anymore. Uh, I remember when you, you were with me, we were together, but now you've left me. We can understand, we can relate to that. And when we read the book of Hosea, Hosea, the, the charges that God lays out in Hosea, there's two things the Lord says that he wants. One, your faithful love. And two, that you would know him. That's the two things. Sometimes we think, what is it that the Lord wants for me? Well, there you go. He wants your faithful love. He doesn't want you to be unfaithful. He wants your faithful love. And he wants you to know him. To know him, the desire to, the same way that we would be in any earthly relationship at all, right? That's what, we, that's what we would love and respect in a friend, right? Someone who has our back, someone who actually cares about us and, and uh, has our best interests at heart, right? Somebody who has taken the time to know us. So the Lord is declaring, this is the thing that he wants. So he says, this is how it used to be. You followed me when we went through a place where there is no food. Remember, how did the children of Israel get food in the 40 years of wandering? God fed them, right? Right? So the Lord fed them and the Lord watered them. He provided water and he provided food. Because if you go 
into Israel and you go out to the wilderness, that you'll look at that place and say, you would not, I don't want to walk in there for a day. Let alone 40 years, there's nothing there. Hills, it's not flat. Hills of barren rock and sand. There's just nothing good about it. So the Lord says, I remember when you were with me, he says in verse 3, Israel was holy to the Lord. So that idea of that word holy, we've, we have um, religiousized it. I don't know if that's a word, I just made it up. So we take holy and we make it this religious term, what's somehow elevated. So just, just think of it like this, when he says, when he says Israel was holy to the Lord, it's, it's the idea that Israel was totally committed. Totally committed. He's saying, you are totally committed to me. The idea of being holy is to be set apart unto. So like to give yourself to an idea. You could say the same thing about an an athlete today in the Olympics. You could say they're holy because they're set apart to achieve a goal, right? The goal is to compete in the Olympics. So the, the word is not necessarily just a religious term. It's an idea of being set apart unto something, focused on, committed to something. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest. So remember, if you look at the beginning of the story, you have the, the, the creation, right? God created the heavens and the earth. Everybody can agree on that, right? God created the heavens and the earth. And you have the fall of man. Man falls. Adam did not fulfill his responsibility as a husband. Eve was deceived by the serpent, or the shining one, depending on on what translation you like. She's deceived, and so Adam transgresses. We have the fall. Then immediately following the fall, we have the corruption of man. Genesis chapter 6. The sons of God saw the daughters of man that they were beautiful and they took for them as many as they liked. Now you can have any number of views about what Genesis 6 is about, but I can guarantee you this one thing. It is definitely about the corruption of man. Man is being corrupted. Then we move on into Genesis chapter 10. We, we run into a fellow named Nimrod, right? You remember Nimrod? He gathered all the people together and they're going to build a a ziggurat, a tower into the heavens, right? And so we see the third part of the, of the downward spiral of man. The fall of man, corruption of man, rebellion of man. So we hit the rebellion of man, and in the Deuteronomy, the Lord says that he turns over the nations of the world. He disinherits them. And he says, I am going to choose from among the nations my own peculiar people. So in Genesis chapter 12, he calls Abram. And he begins to build a nation that will be a light, where? Going to be a light to the Gentiles, to all the nations. So all the nations, uh, depending on... on, uh, what text you follow, there's either 70 or 72, it doesn't matter, because depending on which text you follow, when Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, he either sent them out the 70, or he sent out the 72. They both reconciled, depending on which way you, you go with it. But what was Jesus doing when he sent out the disciples two by two? What was, this, what was, what was the sign? The sign is, now the light has come, and I'm after who? I'm after the nations, I'm sending out the disciples to the 70. 
the 70, the representation of all the other nations. Now, the, the, the final piece of the redemptive puzzle is here. And so the, the call goes out, if you will, to the nations. So when the Lord says, so I pulled you out and I took care of you and I carried you through the desert and I fed you and you were wholly mine and I was wholly yours. He's speaking in terms that we could understand of a relationship, right? That it's, it's you and me. I'm taking care of you and, and you're seeking me and we're, we're, we have successes and failure just like any relationship, mostly because, well, half of his relationship was with a bunch of people and we're not so good at that. So we're, we're working our way through, but he says, you're the first fruits, the first fruits of the harvest. Here the nations are scattered, but the first fruits are these that I have chosen. These that I am developing. These that I am priming through which is going to come Messiah. Which will be the answer to reconcile the world back to God. So he's saying, you're the first fruit of the harvest. He says, all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. All who ate of the first fruits. So they were his peculiar people, but everybody who came against them, God took care of. God was their shield. He said to Abram, when Abram was afraid, after the battle of the five kings, he said, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Abram, I'm everything you need. So he teaches, so this is what he's saying. This was our covenant, right? I'm, I'm with you. I'm watching over you. I'm caring for you. Then he goes on in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. What, what did I do? What wrong did I do you? Did I, was it too much manna? When you were thirsty, the water was... What wasn't cold enough? Was too warm? What what was the what was the deal that turned your heart for me? This is this is a question that the Lord is asking. In verse six, he says, They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? It's like what can often happen, the children of Israel developed a sense of, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? Well, sure, Lord, I remember, yeah, you did this for us, and you delivered us this way, and you carried us through this, but, but now, you know, I have this thing. And God becomes like a genie in a bottle. And so we go to him, for all of these cares, and when one of those cares, when, the re, when something doesn't happen, or something happens that we don't like, it, it, it can turn our heart. And so the Lord says, but they didn't do this. The Lord's saying, what did I do that made you turn away from me to something that's worth less than me? The Lord would declare that he is the most valuable thing in all the universe. And anything we go to less than that is worth less than God, right? So why would you turn to worthlessness? And he said, the question you didn't say is, well, where is the Lord who did all these things for us? Well, the idea is that they're just forgetting. They just forgot him. 
They just turned their heart away from him. And they left. They departed. They left the leading of the Lord. And they began to go their own way. Verse 7, he says, And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits, its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. So they come in, the Lord still, right? The children of Israel were disobedient. They wandered for 40 years, but there came another generation. The Lord gave them another opportunity to trust him and enter into the land. And they did so, right? And God fulfilled this promise. He gave them his land. They deposed the people that were living in it that God said couldn't live there anymore. God has a right to say that. It's his land, right? The earth is the Lord's, how much of it? All of it. So if the Lord says, you don't get this no more, you don't get it no more. It's pretty simple. He, The scripture would tell us that he waited for 400 years. How, what's the longest you ever waited for somebody to, to repent? I guarantee none of us have made it 400 years. Right? The Lord waited for the Canaanites for 400 years. How do I know he gave them opportunity to repent? Well, there's a couple of prophets in the Bible. A guy named Jonah. We've talked about him before, right? Jonah is a Jewish prophet the Lord sent to Assyria. Is Assyria Jewish? Nope. Assyria is a big pack of Gentiles, right? But God sent a Jewish prophet to, a, to the world power of its day calling them to repentance. Why would God tell us that story? Maybe he wants us to understand, you know, the hard-heartedness of Jonah who didn't want to see the Assyrians forgiven. Maybe he wants us to see that he is a graceful, kind God, not the judgmental God we tend to, to bracket upon him when we read the Old Testament scripture. Maybe he also wants to let us know he does things in the Gentile nations that maybe we don't know about. The story we're given in the Bible is the story of the redemption of man. It follows the line of Messiah to the deliverance of Jesus Christ so that we know upon whom we should put our faith and trust so that we can be saved. That's the point of the Bible. It doesn't tell us everything God ever did. Otherwise, I would ask you, where would Jethro come from? How did, how did Moses' wife's father become a priest to the Most High God? Where did he meet God? How do you discover him? How about Melchizedek? Where'd he come from? Now, the only way out of the Melchizedek problem is you have to make Melchizedek a theophany, meaning he's an appearance of God. But it would be the only time God ever showed up where he used a different name. My, my name is Melchizedek, high priest of the Most High God. Where'd he come from? What about the, we're at Christmas time, right? And we sit down and we look under our trees, if you have one, and you, maybe you have a nativity there, and in that nativity you have three wise men. How do they know to come? Where did they pick up on the idea? They're from Iran, Persia. Oh, that's not Jewish central. They're not hanging out in Jerusalem. Where'd they get the idea of the star? Where'd that all come from? Well, I would argue it came from Daniel, but... Right? It just shows the fingerprints of God go beyond just a Jewish nation. God did 
other things. He moved in other ways. He accomplished other things. But when it was time for him to put someone out of the land, hey, you had this opportunity. You didn't repent. You want to understand Jonah? Read Jonah. You see the forgiveness of God. Read Nahum. You see the judgment of God. Nahum's the second prophet God sent to Assyria. And the second prophet who came, the Assyrians did not repent. And God's judgment came. Repent and live. Don't repent. Face judgment. You you have two paths to choose, right? Didn't that what the Lord said before the children of Israel? See this day I have set before you life and death. Choose life. He, as he cast it out before them. So here, he brings the nation of Israel into the good land. To enjoy the fruit and the good things. But look at the second phrase. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Well, how do you defile the land? Is it just sin? Maybe. Maybe. But there's, scripture tells us a more specific way. In Numbers thirty-five thirty-three, it says, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. So what pollutes the land? Blood. God challenged the government to do what? To take care of the evildoer, to protect the people. If a government doesn't do that, the Lord says, The blood of the innocent defiles the land. The blood of the innocent has defiled the land. No atonement can be made for the land. What did he say? No atonement can be, there's no sacrifice else I would give it. Isn't that what David said? No atonement can be made for the land that is shed in it, or for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. There's no sacrifice for that. There was never a sacrifice for murder. So the Lord says, you defiled the land. You didn't, you didn't take care of it. You didn't govern it properly. You didn't protect the innocent. We happen to know for a surety, one of the problems of Manasseh, the, the most wicked king with the longest reign, was that he sacrificed his own children when he built his house. He laid his children in the foundations of his palace. And he was... Not the only, but certainly a part of uh, a cause of child sacrifice that occurred in a place called the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom should sound familiar, right? So Jesus, when he came, he called it Gehenna. The Valley of Hinnom. The place where they used to throw out the trash. Including the children that they sacrificed. You defiled the land with the blood of the innocent. This is what the Lord is saying. This is the charge that he's bringing. Verse 8 of Jeremiah 2. The priests, this more charges, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal. They prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. So there's four groups. He he lists the disobedience of four groups. The, The prophets, the rulers or shepherds, 
right? Often in the Old Testament scripture, the prophet would call the kings shepherds that are supposed to take care of the people, but think, right, that the people exist to make their life better. So they're eating of the flock. So you have prophet, king, priest, lawyer. The four parts, if you will, of of a functioning government. He says, all of this functioning government is is out of whack. They're not looking for me. They don't seek me. They don't care about me. They don't consider me when they make their decisions. So, in verse 9, he said, Therefore I will contend with you. So now you have the Lord contending against his, his bride, his wife. The one that was separated unto him when they walked through the wilderness. So I will contend with you, declares the Lord. With your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea. Or send to Kedar, that's Saudi Arabia. And examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has any other nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? It was not often that someone was conquered and or lost a battle or lost a war and then they changed their gods and be, started worshiping the other guy's gods. They didn't do that. They continued to worship the gods that they worshiped. But for the children of Israel, they were quick to turn away from uh, the God of the universe. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. They've exchanged what was real for what's not. They exchanged it. They were, they were uh, uh, deceived to rejecting the Lord. And it was something they were determined to do. They're like, man... It's like they, they were, their feet were swift in determination to reject God. So the point is, Yahweh, Israel's sovereign Lord, is going to visit her with judgment. This is the decree, the legal decree that God is giving to the nation. Here is the problem. Here are my charges against you. Verse 12. So be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've rejected the truth for the lie. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 1. They threw out the creator for the creature. They took what was transcendent and they traded it, traded it in for something that cannot save. You left living water. So you have to understand living water. Living water is water, any water that bubbles from the ground like a well. Natural well. One of the cool things about natural wells, especially in Israel, is there's still water in them. You go to some of the old wells, they call it like the well of Mary or the or Jacob's well, and there's water there. But with that that well's talked about like four thousand years ago. But living water doesn't go away. Living water is always there. But the Lord saying, you're abandoning the living water, the water that you have access to right here, and you're going out into the middle of the desert and digging a hole in the ground. 
that won't hold water and waiting for it to fill up. You've traded the real water for a place of desert. You've traded, you've departed from the real and you're depending on the broken. And the broken's not going to provide. It's not going to work out. These are the two evils that his people have done. So he's laying out the charge, right? Here's our problem. You have, you have departed from me and you are depending on things, that which cannot save. So in, in this next section, in verse 14, he's going to point toward Israel. Now Israel's gone. Israel's not there anymore. He says, is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become prey? Israel, this nation, that this other half, the northern half of the kingdom of Israel, right? That northern portion, says, why then has he become prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. What happened to Israel? Assyria. Remember Assyria came down, conquered Israel, and came all the way down to Judah, and Hezekiah was there? And Hezekiah said, Lord, what are we going to do? Here's what Shennacherib, this, this uh, captain of the Syrian host, has said about you. What are you going to do, Lord? And the Lord said, don't worry, they're not, not only will they not set a foot in here, you're not even going to have to shoot an arrow. And in one night, the army was gone. God delivered Judah, showed himself able to save, right? I'm living water. That's what he's declaring. I'm living water. But he says, you're living, you're leaving the living water and you're going to water cisterns that won't hold water. Like a big pond that leaks and the water just goes down into the water table and it's gone. You can't get it. You can't get it. It's not going to help you. So he says, Israel, Israel was not a slave or a home-born servant, but because of their disobedience, they went in judgment and their cities were laid waste. Verse 16, moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapheth, I can't say it, Tapanis have shaved the crown of your head. Memphis, we're talking about Egypt. Two places in Egypt. The people, the, Israel and Judah was guilty of the same thing. They kept hoping against Assyria and Babylon that Egypt was going to save them. Will you, will you guys save us? You'll save us, won't you? Oh, of course we will. Of course we will. We're there for you until they're conquered. <laughs> then they're not there for you no more. God's saying, look, they've shaved the crown of your head. Nothing is able to save the places that you're looking are not going to bring salvation for you. And so the Lord is hoping that they'll realize their iniquity, that they'll realize the issues. Verse 17, have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? What do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? It's a lesson the children of Israel never learned. They always reached out to the wrong people. Do you ever wonder how it was that Rome got themselves in there? There was a time of fierce battle between the northern and the southern kingdoms of Greece when Greece divided according to the four generals of Alexander the Great. And Israel kept getting conquered every time 
Antiochus Epiphanes would come by, he'd conquer them. They were always fighting over the, the uh, how do you say it, the Via Damaris, the way of the sea, the trading route that would go between Egypt and Babylon from the Mediterranean. And, of course, there's a valley right there where all those things cross. You guys have probably heard of it before. You want to guess what the name of that valley is? What do you think? You ever heard of Armageddon? Megiddo? That's where Megiddo is. That's where Josiah died. That's where a lot of these battles took place. So, so there, people were always fighting over this. And so Israel keeps getting conquered. They get, one guy comes down and beats them one way. The other guy beats them going the other way. They're getting frustrated. There was a new guy, new kid on the block. Seemed like they were getting strong and powerful. And so Israel reached out to them for help. Just a little place called Rome. Rome got into Israel because they were invited Hey, come help us. Okay. They just didn't leave. Because oft times what happens is the people of God look for help from everyone else. But not from him. So you have the same thing being talking about here. Are you going to go to Egypt? Have you ever seen the Nile River, by the way? I don't ever want to drink out of the Nile. Nor do I want to drink out of the Amazon. You ever seen the Amazon? Oh, it is one ugly looking river. Ugly, full of stuff you don't want to drink. You're going to go to the Nile? Thirst there? Are you going to go to the waters of the Euphrates? Again, it's, he's drawing that correlation back to, what is he pointing to? He said, I was living water for you. When I'm with you, you're never thirsty, you're never hungry. I got you. I got you. But instead... You're going elsewhere. You're looking other places for, for help. In verse 19, so his question, what, what is it you're going to gain? What do you think you're going to gain? Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. For the fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. I often look at it like this. God, God said that you forsook me. So, God takes his hand off. So the people you reach out to help, the Romans, they enslave you. Before then, the people you reach out to help you, the Egyptians, they enslave you. Before that, the people you reach out to help, the Assyrians, they enslave you. Before that, the people you reach out for help, the Babylonians, they enslave you. And the Lord is probably a little frustrated, like, you think that you would learn something from your history. Right? None of these people care about you. None of these people are there to help you, yet you've turned away from me. Your apostasy will reprove you. It means the fact that you have turned away from me. That's what apostasia means. To apostatize, to turn away from one thing and turn to another. It's like the flip side of repentance. Only apostasy is the negative side of it. You are doing the right thing. You had living water, but you've left that for a cistern that doesn't hold water. And so the Lord says, your, your, your own apostasy will reprove you. It's, it's very close to the natural consequences of your choice are 
are what brings or what carries the judgment naturally to you. You have no fear of the Lord. You, you don't want me. You don't care for me. You're not looking for me. Verse 20, here's God's rebuke. He's given the charge. Now he'll lay out his rebuke. For long ago I broke your yoke and I burst your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. I'm reminded, you know, that the, 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 the declaration of the Pharisees when they said, we will not have this man rule over us. Same thing. That's what they said to Jesus, right? When, when, when Pilate is saying, you want me to crucify your king? He's not our king. We will not have this man to rule over us. The Lord said, I, I broke your yoke. I set you free from bondage. But you said, I will not serve. And on every high hill, under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Ezekiel 16 tells the story that of the nation of Israel that God found as an unwanted child thrown away in a field, left to die in her own afterbirth. And God says, I picked you up and I washed you off and I cleaned you and I took care of you and I fed you and I gave you beautiful gifts and I made you my own. But when you were older, you turned away from me to other lovers. You were unfaithful. You, you left me, the one who saved you in that field. And here, similar terms, he's saying, I broke you out of slavery. But as soon as you got out, you said, no, I won't, I won't serve you. I won't be yours. And so you gave yourself away to, to men everywhere. In fact, in Ezekiel 16, he said, the weird thing about your whoredom or your prostitution, he says, you pay men. The men don't pay you. You you want everyone else so bad, you pay them to lie with you. The Lord, you should read Ezekiel 16 sometime. It's pretty wild. Yet I planted you the choice, I planted you a choice vine, holy, a pure seed. How then have you become a degenerate wild vine? I'm, I made you perfect. You're, you're good. You're right, but you've become wild. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. Same thing as he declared earlier. There's no atonement for a defiled land. There are sin for which there was no sacrifice. <clears throat> Sometimes we think the sacrificial system just purged the people of, of all their sin. No, God's grace did that. There was no atonement, no sacrifice for David to offer, no sacrifice for a land that was filled with innocent blood. That's God's grace that you were depending on, right? That God would forgive, that God would overlook, that God would. And so the Lord says, your guilt stands before me. Your guilt is still here. So how can you say in verse 23, I am not unclean? See, the people would say, God is making this charge through the prophets. And the prophets are saying, man, we have sinned. We need to repent. And the people would say, I don't need to repent. I haven't sinned. See, the Lord's problem in his bringing of judgment against the, the nation of Judah was that there was no acknowledgement that there was anything that they had ever done wrong. Well, how have we sinned? He's, they're saying, I'm, they say, I am not unclean. 
you say, I have not gone after the Baals. Baal means Lord, by the way. Interesting name of a God. The Lord. Look at your, uh, look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness. In her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. He's saying, you're running around like a wild donkey. And he, and he, the comparison, right, is between uh, what, would, what was described in the beginning as a monogamous relationship between God and the nation of Israel. But now you're like a wild donkey and you're after anybody, everybody, whoever. You're going everywhere to find the answer to your problems, but the Lord says you're not coming to me. You're running every which way. But you say you're not unclean. So he's saying, look, you guys are promise breakers. You've broken the covenant. You guys are unfaithful. You only want to fulfill your own lust and you won't turn to me. In verse 25, he says, keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said it's hopeless for I have loved foreigners. After them I will go. It's like you, you won't turn. What is repentance? Repentance is, is realizing that at any point I can stop my progress down this road and change my direction. Now, we all would repent if we went down the wrong road. If you were driving and you were trying to get to the airport in Boise and then all of a sudden you noticed you were in Nampa... You're not just going to go, well, I've come this far, might as well just keep going and see where I get. Nope. If you actually want to get to the airport and catch your flight, you're going to turn around. You're going to go the right way. But the people, the people weren't saying that. The people were saying, well, we've kind of already cast our die. We're here. We've gone this far. We're just going to, we're just going to keep going. We're not going to change. So in verse 26, the Lord says, as a thief, is shamed when caught. So the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets, the same group within the government, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth. What's he referring to? Idolatry. You cut something out of wood and you say, oh, you're the one who who created me. You pick up a stone and paint it and bring it in and bow down and, and pray to that stone. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. As soon as you get in trouble, O Lord, remember me. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are, are your gods, O Judah. God says, you have, more, you have as many gods as you have cities. Filled with idolatry, yet they say we have not sinned. God's call to repentance goes unheeded. They won't turn. We've come too far down this road. We're not going to change our direction now. So the Lord says, when you find yourself in your place of trouble, call Egypt and see if they'll come. Call Assyria. Call out to your false gods and see if they are able to arise Verse 29, the Lord says, Why do you contend with me? 
You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain I have struck your children. They took no correction. What does the book of Proverbs say about someone who can't be corrected? What, what is the category? There's two categories, right? The wise and the fool. So it's the fool who will not receive correction. A fool will not receive... I think about that all the time when I'm banging my head against a, a, a stone wall and I say to myself, it's a fool that won't receive correction. To be directed as the Lord would direct. So he's saying, I struck. It's like I, I spanked your children, but they won't, they won't receive correction. You know, I'm... I'm uh, Sometimes we act like dumb animals who keep going back to the same old thing. Going back to the same old problem. So he says, um, your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. So think about that saying. God said, I, I sent you prophets who said to you, whom I visited, the word of God came to them, whom I delivered a word for you to, and they came to you and you killed them. Isn't that the same story Jesus told? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who have slain the prophets and those whom I have sent to you. That pattern followed all the way through to Messiah, didn't it? You have slain those whom I have sent to you to call you to change your direction. So again, the emphasis is on the idea. A fool won't receive correction. A fool won't turn. So what's the result? What's going to happen? And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free? We will come no more to you. Have I, have I been so bad? Has this been such an evil thing that you've turned your back to me and you won't come? You're determined not to return to the Lord. So the people are unrepentant. So verse 32, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? The idea, a virgin forgetting her ornaments, those things that she wore that, that uh, uh, marked her as uh, someone who was available to be considered for a husband. A virgin would not forget those ornaments because then you look like something else altogether different. In that culture, that would have been bad. Nowadays, it's not so bad, but then it would have been. So you'd want people to know. Or will a bride forget her dress? She just show up in whatever? No. My, yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How will you direct your course to seek love? You're out looking for your own relationships, but you seem to be able to do that okay. So that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirt is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. Wonder who that is. On your skirts is the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in, yet in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent. I am innocent. I haven't done anything wrong. We have not sinned, O Lord. Surely his anger has turned from me. So the Lord says, Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. The Lord is bringing the judgment because the people won't repent. 
And part of repentance is this phrase, confession. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Homo legeo. If you confess your sins, this is what confession looks like. O Lord, I have sinned against you. I'm wrong. You were right when you said, whatever, this is wrong. That's confession. There can be no forgiveness without confession. Without coming to the Lord and acknowledging you're wrong. Why is the Lord bringing judgment against Judah? Because Judah says, ah, we're not doing anything wrong. This is not wrong, it's okay. Those were the old days. These are the days today. You don't think they were saying that in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? Solomon would tell us there's nothing new under the sun. We've all been saying the same things probably since Genesis 11. When the fall of man was complete... We've been using the same excuses over and over and over again. So the Lord says, I will bring judgment because you say you have not sinned. You will not turn toward me. So I will bring judgment. How much you go about changing your way. But you shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. For neither of them are going to help. From it too you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust. And you will not prosper by them. The same way, in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar wrote similar letters to Judah about the rebellion. Before all of that happened, God wrote Jeremiah 2 to Jerusalem. Delivered it to the king and said, this is God's charge. What's wrong? When Jonah walked through Assyria and said, in 40 days, God's going to kill you all. The king got off his throne, put on sackcloth and ashes, called.